Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. We've been in a series of messages that we have been calling Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It was the teaching that Jesus gave where he was helping his disciples to see that the way that you live is different than the way that you lived before you were my disciple. It's different than the world around you. You you live right side up in an upside down world. And in the midst of this, we've been walking through the Beatitudes. Those are those opening statements that Jesus makes. And I'll begin with the word blessed. In fact, we'll look at the the last two next Sunday morning. But we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever ever had the thought, have you ever heard the saying, boy, they really know how to push my buttons? You ever heard that about somebody? Boy, does she... Boy, does he know how to push my buttons. Read a story this week. A few years back, there was a court in Florida where the assistant uh, district prosecutor wanted to, um, to, to get to a point where they, were, uh, where they were defending this guy. And the judge said, look, I don't, I don't think this should go to trial. You should just settle this thing. What he was saying was, I don't have time for this. You guys just take care of it. And the, the defender was, was saying, look, I want my client to go to trial. I want to do what's right here. And the judge just wasn't having much patience, didn't want anything to do with it. The two of them kind of got into a little spat in the courtroom. We know this because it was all video recorded. There's video cameras in the courtroom. And in the midst of this, this defender and this judge begin to get into it with each other. And the judge looks at the attorney and he says, these are, these are his words, if I had a stone, I would throw it at you right now. Sit down. And the defender goes, look, I have the right to defend my client. I'm not going anywhere. I want my client to have a trial. At which point, and this is true, the judge looks at the defender and says to the attorney, how about you and I take this out back and settle it? The video shows that the two of them stood up and went into a hallway that was back behind the the courtroom where there were were no cameras, but the audio picks it up. You hear this this wrestling, this scuffling, things banging into walls, things being knocked over. The judge and the attorney get into a fight. The two deputies have to go and break up. After after they settle the whole thing, they, they relocate this attorney so he doesn't have to be in that courtroom anymore, and the judge has to go have anger management classes. Isn't that awesome? You know why? Because they knew how to push each other's buttons. You ever know anybody like that? Here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Seems like a pretty simple phrase. Until you really start looking at it. Well, what is peace? Well, the biblical concept of peace is, is a Hebrew word that we use so many times, shalom. And the biblical concept of peace is shalom, which is completeness or wholeness in every area of life. It has this idea, not just of an absence of conflict, but of a general sense of well-being. And when we talk about shalom, when we talk about peace, when we talk about being a peacemaker, we use it in the context of our relationship with God, our relationship with our neighbor, relationships among nations. So this idea of peace is a powerful one, and it's probably a pretty timely topic for us because our world is kind of a mess, isn't it? There's this group that's called the Institute for Economics and Peace. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, group that every so often they, they put out what they call the Global Peace Index. And they did this just last year in 2016. Here's just a couple of the stats that fascinated me. If you want to know the state of our world, there are only 10 nations in the world that are currently not at war. Only 10 nations in the world are currently not in one form or another at war right now. There's recorded 57 million refugees, displaced peoples, and other groups of concern in the world right now because there's so much conflict. And I don't know how you come up with these numbers, but this just kind of fascinated me. Violent crimes cost $1,876 for every person in the world, which is a total of about $13 trillion. 
So if you take all the, the global economy and you look at that, $13.6 trillion is given to conflict in one way or another, which is about 13% of the global economy. So over 10% of the global economy is somehow tied up in conflict of one way or another. Our world is in a bit of a mess. And peace is not just something that we're struggling to find globally. I think peace is something that many people are struggling to find nationally. In fact, some of the research I looked at said that kind of in the last five years or so, more Americans describe themselves as angry than ever before. We live in kind of an angry culture. And it's fueled by reports and by injustice and by things that we hear about prejudice and racism and anger and inequality and hatred. And that's not just true globally. It's not just true locally. It can be really true personally. Some of you have family who get on your nerves. Some of you have a boss who doesn't treat you right. Some of your coworkers are jerks. Some of you have classmates that are irritating. And then Jesus has to go and say, blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> it's not easy to be a peacemaker. So how do, you, how do you know what a peacemaker is? This is an interesting concept. Sometimes the, the best way for us to know what something is is to talk about what it isn't. That kind of highlights it for us. So let's think of it this way. A peacemaker is not a troublemaker. A peacemaker is not a troublemaker. A troublemaker is kind of that, that person who's always looking to stir something up. They're not looking to make peace. If you had to kind of just figure out what's the difference between a peacemaker and a troublemaker, let's imagine this. If you have a fire, a peacemaker walks up on the fire and pours water on it. A troublemaker walks up and pours gasoline on it. That's the difference between a peacemaker and a troublemaker. Now, I'm not talking about when I, when I say a troublemaker, someone who just kind of likes to have fun. I mean, yesterday was April Fool's, right? Some of you probably pulled little pranks of one form or another. I'm not talking about the kind of the innocent jokester. We're, we're taking this a little bit deeper when we talk about the difference. And it's a distinction that I think is important for us to see between a peacemaker and a troublemaker. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What an interesting title. If you're a peacemaker, you're a child of God. What that means is when you show peace to another person, when you make peace with another person, that's when you look like your heavenly father. We've had several friends who have had, had children recently, and what's interesting is that first time that you see the baby, and this happens kind of repeatedly, one of the first things you should try to do is figure out who does the baby look like? Does he look like daddy? Does she look like mommy? You know, you try to do that kind of thing because you want to tie it back together with where you came from. When you show peace, when you make peace with another person, you look like your heavenly father. So that's a cool thing because that says you're a part of that family. When you're a peacemaker, you're like God. When I was in high school, I remember that we got a, an invitation to go to a family reunion and I need to be careful because my mom's in this service, so I need to say, I, I won't say whether it was for my mom or dad's side, but it wasn't my mom's. And, and um, we got this reunion to go to this, or this invitation to go to a family reunion. Well, we didn't know any of these people. Like, we'd never met any of these people. We kind of, I don't know if somebody had done just some research, kind of sorting the family tree, but they invited us to go to the reunion. It was a couple hours away, and we thought, well, it might be kind of fun. So I remember it was a Sunday. We loaded up in the van, and we drove a couple hours away, and we got to that place, and it was interesting. You're meeting all these people that you share some heritage with, and it didn't take us long to figure out why we'd never met them before. <laughs> they were weird. <laughs> these are weird people. And we kind of walked, I hope none of them ever watched this. And we kind of looked at this and, uh, and, and just kind of went, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we'll go back. We didn't fit in. Didn't really, you know, outside of a last name, it was kind of like, oh, still really don't have that much in common. Sometimes you have to look at your family and go, huh, is that really where I'm coming from? First John chapter three, watch, I have a point with this. First John chapter three, verse 10, look at this. John says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not know what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So if you do not do what is right, you're not God's child. And if you do not love your brother and sister, well, if you do not love your brother and sister, you really don't sound like much of a peacemaker. So if you're not a peacemaker, you're a troublemaker. When you're a troublemaker, you're not a child of God. You are a child of, <laughs> let's just say you're going to a different family reunion, <laughs> right? So get this, this is a pretty big deal. A peacemaker is a child of God. A troublemaker is a child of the devil. So when you're pouring gasoline on that fire, you're not doing God's work. 
At that point, you're doing the devil's work. So that makes this idea of how to be a peacemaker a pretty big deal. So let's talk today about how we make peace. And I want to give you two ways today. We're going to look at two ways to make peace. Now, when something comes your way, when you have to choose how you're going to respond to a situation, there's two ways to kind of respond. You can either respond proactively or you can respond reactively. You can kind of think ahead and say, look, I want to to handle this on the front side. Or sometimes you have to just react and respond to something that comes your way. So we're going to look at a proactive way to make peace. And we're going to look at a reactive way to make peace today. So let's start with number one. We need to make proactive proactive peace. As a peacemaker, number one, we need to make proactive peace. What does it mean to be proactive? Well, when you're proactive, it means you get out ahead of something. There's some effort to put something forward, which, which brings us to, to look at the words that are used here. Jesus says to be a peacemaker, and a peacemaker is not just a peacekeeper. Peacemaker is not just a peacekeeper. Now, now there's nothing wrong with keeping the peace. It's, it's important. It's a good thing. But at some point, that idea of being a peacekeeper is pretty passive. So when you go, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to keep the peace here. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to say too much. Or I, I don't want to do anything. And you get very passive in the process. And at some point, that's not a good thing. At some point, if peace is really true, peace is going to exist. You have to be active in how you pursue it. You have to make a decision to make peace happen. Now, a peacekeeper's heart is usually in the right place. But because they don't want to do anything that's going to cause any trouble or conflict, that passive avoidance of conflict actually oftentimes makes the situation worse than it needs to be. And the other thing, oftentimes we think of a peacemaker as an outside observer, as somebody that comes in, sees two people in conflict and says, look, I'm going to help make peace in this situation. Understand this, being a peacemaker is not just being a referee. Usually the peace we have to make starts in ourselves. So we need to understand this. Here's a a thought to kind of build off of, that peace is made through active choice. If you're going to make peace, you have to choose to do it. It's not just going to happen. Now, Scripture makes this very clear. Look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Look at the word choice here. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, look, if it is possible, which was just a reality, sometimes there's some people who just don't want peace, Right? Sometimes you interact with people and you're like, this this just isn't going to work because peace takes two sides at some point in a relational sense. He says, if it is possible, you do everything that you can to make peace. And his point here is this. There are times when peace is not possible, but don't let it be your fault. Don't let it be your fault that that peace isn't found. You do everything in your power to make peace. So so here's a few observations as we think about this verse. The the first is this. Peace is usually the tougher choice in the short term with the greater reward in the long term. Choosing peace is usually the tougher choice in the short term. When you do something wrong to me, when I see a situation that I don't like, my natural response, yours isn't because you're more holy, but mine is to get defensive. Mine is kind of push back. Mine is kind of to be more of a a, a warrior than a peacemaker, right? We're we're wired that way. But when I choose peace instead, it's tough in the moment, but it pays off because that short-term tough decision has long-term benefits in the regrets that I don't have. So that tough decision to choose peace is a powerful thing. And he says here, he says, choose peace as far as it depends on you. Look, you, you do your part. You, you can't control everyone. You can't control everything. But a peacemaker strives to stop conflict before it starts. A peacemaker strives to stop conflict before it starts. To be proactive means you, you deal with the situation before the situation gets out of hand. Because if you think you can just leave a situation alone, you're kind of fooling yourself. Think, think of it in this sense. If you have a house and that house is left vacant and empty, is the house going to naturally get nicer and better? No, it's just going to fall apart. If nobody's there, if nobody's caring for this house, things are going to deteriorate, things are going to break, things are going to fall apart, and the house will eventually be a wreck. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't have HGTV. (laughs) But it is true. And you have to take care of things, or the natural state of them will deteriorate. That's not just true about a house, it's true about relationships. 
So if you're in some kind of a relationship and you keep going, look, I'm just gonna be a peacekeeper here. I'm not gonna rock the boat. At some point, peace is not just gonna naturally happen. You have to choose to make it happen. Real peace is never passive peace. It's, it's never just something that just kind of happens. You have to be active and move forward in that. This is language that Paul uses, not just in Romans 12. Look at what he says in Romans 14. And, and, and the language here is really important. He says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. He says, look, be proactive. Do everything you can to bring peace to a situation. He says, not just to bring peace, but also for mutual edification. Don't just worry about peace for yourself, but what's good for the people that are around you? Now watch, he unlocks a really interesting principle here. Think, think of the context of this passage. If you go back and you read Romans 14, it's similar to some other passages, both in Romans and then in 1 Corinthians, where Paul's talking about the fact that there was some legalism that would happen at times, where there were people who were new to Christianity, and there was, there was a practice in that day and time where they would eat meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols. And many people would say, well, we don't want to do that because that's a part of paganism. And Paul had said, look, you, you don't have to be bound to that. If you, if you ask God to bless it, then it's blessed. He says, so you are free to do whatever you want. However, there will be some people who will see you do that, and it will hurt their faith. It might push them away from God. Or if there's someone who maybe hasn't reached the level of maturity that you've reached, and they see you do that, it might force them to go backwards in their walk instead of moving forward. So this, this is what he's addressing here. He's saying, look, how you respond is gonna affect other people. So watch what he says about peace with this. Back to Romans 14, verse 19. Look at the context. He says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Do you see this? He immediately ties peace with the, with the spiritual well-being of another person, which raises a really interesting principle. Personal choice promotes public peace. Your personal choice is going to promote public peace. When we say public peace in, in your home, in the church, in your community, in the circle of influence that you have, and oftentimes we want to go, look, I can do anything I want, especially as Christians. Look, I'm free in Christ. I can, I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. And if somebody else can't handle that, that's their problem, not mine. And Paul says, time out. Actually, the inside of Scripture says that how you live, the choices you make have an effect on other people. Your personal choice affects public peace. And then the author of Hebrews takes this one more layer deeper. Look at what we read here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, do you see what he did in that passage? In the first verse, he says, hey, do everything you can to keep the peace. And then he says, hey, make sure that no bitterness comes up. Because he's showing this point that when the peace isn't there, that's where bitterness is prone to show up, where there's peace. That brings a contentment to the heart, to the church, to your family, to your workplace. When you strive to promote peace, it's a beautiful thing. But when peace is absent, bitterness is present. And the, and the two, uh, it's interesting. When there's an absence of peace, when there's chaos, dissent, fighting, antagonism, it opens the door for detrimental spiritual things to take place. When peace is absent, Bitterness is present. Yeah, but what's it matter what I do? I mean, I, I, I can live how I want. I can do what I want. I don't, I don't need to worry that much about other people. And the reality is your choices affect the lives of other people to the point that it can put you in a place where you're a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. I went to a, I went to a real small Christian college, and um, our dorms were not not awesome, let's just say it that way, and they had some power supply problems, and this is back in, what, the early 90s, and so one of the rules was that you, you couldn't have any TVs or refrigerators or, 
or, uh, or uh, microwaves in your room because they, they would have power issues. So you couldn't have that. So we had one microwave that was on the hall, kind of out in the middle of the hallway, and it was kind of a communal microwave that you could use. And so sometimes people would be like, oh, I'm gonna have some microwave popcorn. So you'd go out there and you'd put that bag of popcorn in there. Have you ever smelled microwave popcorn when it's popping? It's awesome, isn't it? I thought about like doing that, like bringing a microwave out here and popping some so that you could have that smell, but it's way too close for lunch and you'd stop being peacemakers. And so I decided not to. Right? So you'd smell it. You'd be like, oh, so-and-so's making popcorn. You just smell it. I might make some popcorn. You need to smell it. Like, I want some of that. Then so-and-so would actually have gone back to their room to get something and forgot that the microwave was still running. And then they leave that thing running and it's popping popcorn for 10 minutes. How's it smell now? Like death. Right? It's terrible. That burnt popcorn smell. And it's horrible. People open their doors. What's going on? What's happening? Because that smell just, it travels like crazy. I mean, your rooms would smell like it. The whole hall smelled like it. It was bad news. Somebody's like, oh, yeah, sorry, guys. I had to run down to my room and forgot I was popping popcorn. You did what? What happened? Oh, it's not a big deal. I just kind of made a mistake. I just made a choice that was bad. And we're like, yeah, and your choice made all of us stink. Sometimes we think we make a choice and that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect other people. And the truth is, sometimes your choices make other people's lives stink. Does that make sense? Look, we have to be wise what we choose because it affects the peace, not just in our own lives and of others. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So if that's the case, let's let's talk real practically. How am I going to make proactive peace? Here's here's two scenarios. Let Let me throw this out from Scripture. Psalm 34, verse 12 Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. You see what he connects here? He connects the active pursuit of peace, proactive peace, to what comes from our tongue and our lips. And so what he says here is that we have to choose peace with our words. You have to choose peace with your words. And that's powerful about the things that you say. He says, keep your lips from telling lies. Keep your tongue from evil. Your words will have an effect on the way that you have peace in your life and the way that other people have peace in their lives. Because if you think about it, what's the quickest way to put gasoline on fires that prop up in your life? We usually pour it out the quickest with our mouths, don't we? Our lips, our tongues, our words. The things that we say have such tremendous power to rob us of peace. But when we talk about words, I think it's important that we, that we realize that we have to choose peace with our words, but that's not, in our, in our day, in our culture, that's not just what we verbally say. We use words in a lot of other ways. Think for a moment about the, the power that people have to promote words, let's just say online, in social media. And remember, your responses, your, your tweet, your post, your status, your comment has incredible power to bring or take away peace from your life and the lives of others. And I know maybe I'm meddling here a little bit, but I, I would just encourage some of you, do not let a moment of isolation make you so bold that you say something that you will regret. Because whatever you say online, whether you realize it or not, the way that you post online defines you to others that see that. Whether that's really who you are or not, that's who they think that you are. So at some point, when you go to post something, before you, before you click that thing that sends it or seals it or does whatever it does to put that out there, you might want to ask yourself, is this really what I want to say? Because oftentimes we can take this tone that is critical or that is complaining, and I have to ask myself in those moments, when I want to post something like that, I have to ask myself, is, is this wisdom or am I seeking wisdom or am I just whining? Sometimes they look an awful lot alike. And we need to ask, is this wisdom or is this whining? And every so often I'll see someone who, who wants to put out like this, this cryptic message through sarcasm or through these hints without, you know, they're just kind of complaining without saying anything. And, and just, just, just for a frame of reference, sometimes people think they're being clever, clever and they're actually just being bitter. And there's a difference between the two. Because your words have tremendous power to bring peace and to take away peace. And I know people, none of you go to this church, so it's a good thing, but I know people who, who just like to use their words in ways that aren't the words of a peacemaker. 
So just remember this, a peacemaker is not a noisemaker. Some people just like to make noise. And that's not necessarily what a peacemaker does. So the psalmist says, keep your, keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking lies. We need to choose peace with our words. And then watch this passage of scripture, James chapter three, verse 14. It says, but if you harbor bitter envy, watch, watch the progression here. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers, there's that word again, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now there's, there's a ton of stuff there that we could talk about and, and it's actually kind of a sermon in and of itself, but, but look at what he's saying here. He's challenging us, choose peace with your attitude. The way that you interact with others, the way that you think, the way that you live, you need to choose peace with your attitude. You, you see the damage of selfishness there? He talks about selfishness, about envy, about selfish ambition. And he says, those things lead to disorder. They lead to every evil practice. If you read it in the King James Version, it uses the word confusion. What's the opposite of peace? Confusion. And so your attitude, if you're not careful, if, you, if you're not wise about it, can bring that confusion and that detriment to your life. So at some point, if I want to be proactive about peace, I got to do a little checkup of myself. And I need to go, okay, is my attitude part of the problem here? Is, is the reason there's not peace in this situation me? That at some point, I'm, I might need to have a conversation where I look at somebody and go, you know what, man, I need you to forgive me. I, I'm gonna ask you to show me a little grace because, man, I messed this up. And I was selfish or I was wrong or I didn't respond in the right way to this situation. And maybe the first step towards bringing peace has more to do with you and your attitude than it does anything else. And then he goes on to say that when you sow in peace, remember he says the peacemaker who sows in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, when things are right with God, when things are right with each other, there's a, there's a righteousness that comes to a circumstance. And he helps us to see here that peace produces righteousness. When you sow peace, that's when you'll reap righteousness. When you're a peacemaker, that's when you'll have the sense that things are right in your world. That's a powerful thing because peace produces righteousness. So much so that, listen to what Proverbs says, Proverbs 14, 30, that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'll raise my hand for peace. <laughs> okay, okay, Chad, that's, that's cool. But what do, you, what do you do if you're in a situation where, where you're, you're almost, in a certain sense, forced to make a decision and you know that, um, that that's not gonna, it's not gonna lead to peace in a circumstance. What if somebody's compelling you to, to do or to support something that, that you know is not scriptural, in fact, to the point that you'd say it's sin? Or what if someone wants you to be excited or get behind something that you know is not good for them, that it's actually harmful to them? Or what if, what if you have this conviction that compels you to respond in a certain way, but you know that if you do that, you're actually gonna alienate that person and maybe even hurt that relationship rather than bring peace to it? What do you do in those times? I don't know, let me know, figure it out. No, they're tough, aren't they? They're difficult situations that oftentimes we need the Holy Spirit's guidance in those times to know how's the best way to bring peace. Let me give you just a couple of things to consider. One is this, when you're going to respond, ask yourself, am I motivated by self or by scripture? Am I doing this because this is a biblical principle that I feel like I need to hold to? Or is this just my own self that's driving me to think in this way? At some point we have to recognize, am I, am I motivated by conviction or, or do I just like the chaos? Am I trying to do the right thing in this circumstance? And when I do have to have a conversation with somebody that isn't positive and in the sense that it's not gonna be easy and I know that there's the potential that this could blow up, I have to ask myself the question, am I coming at this with a loving heart or a loaded gun? 
Because a lot of times, I like to load up with my ammunition, and I know I'm right, and I'm going to make my point, and I go busting in, and I start firing away, and there's not love in my heart in that process. That, that's not the heart of a peacemaker. But be proactive. Don't run away from opportunities for peace, because a peacemaker is not an excuse maker. A peacemaker is someone who is proactive and says, I'm going to do my best to make peace. But, but it's not always that easy because sometimes, if we're just going to be honest, you have, to, you have to react to what's happened to you. Someone's going to respond in a certain way to you. It's not anything you could have thought about or planned. And in that moment, how are you going to respond? So the first thing we looked at was how to make proactive peace. Here's the second one we'll quickly look at, and that's how to make reactive peace. Number two, how do you make reactive peace? Peacemakers aren't just out in front of the conflict. At times, you have to respond to something that's been done to you. So, so let's go back to the words of Jesus. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Look at what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You, you ever heard that before? Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth? You ever heard that? It was kind of the, the rule in the ancient Near East, and it was referred to as lex talionis. And oftentimes we think about that like personal vengeance. Like you take my eye, I'm going to take your eye. You take my tooth, I'm going to take your tooth. I'm going to get you back. That wasn't the idea behind it. Originally when it was, when it was kind of mapped out, the decision was we need corporate standards for justice. What's fair? So if I'm done wrong, what's the right compensation that I receive? But instead of thinking it that way, people were beginning to think of it as an opportunity to get vengeance on other people. And so Jesus says, look, that that, that, that you've heard, that's not how we're going to respond. These teachings that Jesus is giving here, he's saying, look, this, this is how my followers live. He says, you're going to live a little differently. So he says, look, if someone slaps you, and, and that's not just a, a physical assault. In that culture, if someone took the back of their right hand and pulled it back and slapped you on your right cheek, that wasn't just a physical offense. They were saying you have no value. They were offending your very person. They were saying you don't matter to me. They were assaulting you not just physically, but emotionally, publicly, socially, personally. That slap meant so much more than just a physical abuse. And Jesus says if they slap you on your right cheek, turn them to the left also. So for the record, that's nuts right? I'm going to do what? And then Jesus says, look, if they, ask you, if they ask you for your shirt, give them your coat too, which was really interesting in that culture because if you, for whatever reason, were to take someone's coat, it was required that outer garment that you would give that back to them before nightfall because for some people, it was the only way they had to keep warm at night. So you wouldn't keep another guy's coat. You'd give it back to him. And Jesus says, look, if they want your shirt, give them your coat. There was this idea of Roman impressment that the, that the Roman government had. And if you remember, they were kind of ruling over the Jewish people at that time. And what they could do whenever they wanted was just say, hey, you're going to help me do this. So there's stories of when uh, Roman soldiers would just get groups of people and say, hey, you're going to build this, or you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. Do you remember when, when Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross? He didn't have a choice. He was just said, hey, this is what you're going to do. That's Roman impressment. In fact, that was some of the ways that at times they would actually deliver the mail. They'd say, hey, you're going to carry that for me. And so if somebody comes and says to you, hey, you're going to carry this one mile, you say, no problem, I'll go two. I'll take it two miles for you. Jesus says, look, if, if somebody wants to borrow something from you, don't do a credit check. Just give them what they want. All those things are crazy. Jesus says that we're supposed to go above and beyond in all of this. Now, what he's not saying to us is that we're supposed to roll over and play dead. We are supposed to have wisdom. Here's the point that he's trying to make. He says a peacemaker gives more than is required. You're supposed to do this? Then don't be afraid to do that. And he's living in a culture where it was fueled by rebellion and revolt, and there were zealots who were trying to overthrow the government. And Jesus says, instead of overthrow, why don't you just be a peacemaker? Why don't you give more than is required? And if I were going to be honest with you, I, I kind of have a hard time understanding that. Like, how, how do you know what's wise? How do you know when you, 
you should kind of give in. And how, how do you know when you're supposed to hold on? Paul helps us. The, the best way to understand scripture is to interpret it with other scripture. Look at this, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, there's times when you may feel like you could bring justice or a situation isn't right or it's just not fair. And here's the point. Do not forfeit your peace with God in order to have your own justice with another. Sometimes we do that. We, we want things to be right. I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna make it right. And in the process, we're so driven by justice that we end up losing our peace with God. There is a powerful, powerful statement that's made there. That phrase that Paul uses that is so strong, he says, leave room for God's wrath. Look, it's, it's not on you to fix everything. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He didn't call you to make it right. Yes, you've been done wrong. Yes, that's not fair. Yes, that cost you something. You know what? Leave room for God's wrath because some battles, and the Holy Spirit has to help with this, some battles just aren't worth fighting. The last soldier to die in World War I, the, the last recorded death in that great war was an American, a 23-year-old named Henry Gunther, who was a private in the American Expeditionary Force in France. He was killed, and, and these are the facts, he was killed at 10.59 a.m. on November 11th, 1918. Does anybody know what happened at 11 a.m. on November 11th, 1918? The armistice, the war ended, ceasefire, no more war. He died one minute before the armistice went into effect. His, his uh, group had, had encountered a German roadblock, and when they came up on it, they had to decide what to do. And everybody knew that the war was gonna end shortly, and so how do we respond in that moment? And so what was interesting was the sergeant of this group said, do not attack, and Henry Gunther grabbed his, his bayonet, and he went charging at this German roadblock on his own. Even the Germans were going like, dude, stop, you don't have to, that, that's not a German translation, I mean, I don't speak German, but it was just, dude, stop. You don't have to do this. And as he continued to charge at them, they had no choice but to shoot him and he immediately died in that conflict. And here's what is in the official record. It says, almost as he fell, the gunfire died away and an appalling silence prevailed. Henry Gunther picked the wrong battle, didn't he? He didn't need to fight that one. It was already over. Somebody else had taken care of that. And yet he chose to go charging in and it cost him so much more than he thought it would. There are battles that come in our lives that can I just help you with this? You don't have to fight. Leave room for God's wrath. Trust God to take care of that. Because watch what Jesus goes on to say. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's that idea again of the children of the Father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And, and the idea there is, is as God is perfect, you should strive in that same way to be perfect. Because a peacemaker gives more than is required and from this passage, look at this, a peacemaker loves more than is expected. A peacemaker loves more than is expected. Jesus says, you know you heard you're supposed to love your friends and hate your enemies? I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I say, Jesus, that makes no sense. Why would I do that? 
If someone's out to get me, they're the, they're the last person I should show love to. Why would I ever pray for that person? Now, I don't know. I, I think when you're a kid, you think certain people maybe are your enemies, but I, I've kind of grown up. I don't know that I have any sworn enemies at this point in my life. And if, and if you are my sworn enemy, just don't let me know, because ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I just don't even want to know. But there are those people that push my buttons. The truth is, there are people who don't have your good intentions in mind. They don't have your best interest in what they do. How do you respond to those people? He says, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Why on earth would I do that? Well, one of the reasons is this. When we pray, God does stuff, doesn't he? And so maybe God's bringing a change to that situation, and he wants to do it through you. So in a small way, I think we pray for our enemies because we're praying for that person. In a big way, I think we pray for our enemies not because of what it does in the enemy's heart, but because of what it does in your heart. Because if you allow hate to come in instead of love, you're not hurting that person, you're hurting this person. And if you get so frustrated that all you have is bad thoughts towards that person, it's gonna be poison inside of you. But when you pray for that person, it's not just their heart, it's your heart that gets changed. Does that make sense? So in those moments, and Jesus brings this up here, he says, look, don't, don't let that hate win. Don't let that battle come in. Blessed are the peacemakers. And even if you can't make peace in the situation, at least be at peace in yourself. Love and pray instead. Because in the process, who you're really helping is yourself. There, there, was a, um, there was a German dye company in the early 1800s that created this, this dye that was all the rage. It like took off. And, and part of the reason was, and at that kind of time, the gas lamps were, were becoming more prevalent in homes and in, in streets and in big buildings. And so when there would be social gatherings, now instead of just candlelight, you could see things more. And so there was this color of green that this dye company in Germany kind of patented and made that was just beautiful. And it was bright and it was vibrant and it resembled um, jewels. And that's why they called it emerald green. And it was all the rage. And the, the high-class socialite women, they were buying it up like crazy because when you would walk in a room in that color, you were immediately noticed. You, you, you took over at that point. And in Britain in particular, it became so popular that there was wallpaper made with this color. There were rugs made with this color. It was this beautiful, bright, vibrant shade of green. And the reason that that color stood out so much is because of what it was made from. And it was made from arsenic. <laughs> you ever heard of arsenic? If you haven't, quick note. It'll kill you. <laughs> and so people were making it out of this, and the contact that they were having was literally poisoning them. And as a result, you know, women would wear these dresses, and they would break out in boils. It would be nasty until it started to affect them internally, and then their organs would begin to suffer, eventually to the point where it could shut down your kidney and your liver based on that poison that you were allowing to just kind of be on top of your body. And do you remember I mentioned carpet and wallpaper? They, they had it all over their homes. It was, it was killing children because of this poison that they thought was so beautiful. And even after this was known, there were, there were large segments of society that just said, well, it's not that big of a deal, and it's really not affecting me, and I'm not that worried about it because I like the color so much. And they were choosing to poison themselves because they liked how it made them look and feel. And for some of us, we're holding on to things and we're holding on to hate and we're holding on to bitterness. And the reason Jesus says you need to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you is not because he wants you to be weird. It's because he does not want you to be wearing poison. Does that make sense? Now, here's what bugged me. I mean, we've just kind of been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're back at this subject again. And I think this is about the third time in, in a couple of months that we've come back to this idea of forgiveness. And I almost didn't bring this point up, because I was like, Chad, you say this again, people are going to think you're, you're starting to beat a dead horse. And then I realized that the Holy Spirit just kind of whispered to me and said, yeah, Chad, but some people's horses are still breathing. <laughs> Maybe it's time that we do something about this. Because that bitterness, it's robbing you of peace. Which causes us to kind of highlight something that's, that's really interesting, because it's fun to talk about being a peacemaker. 
because it brings, brings life and it's health and you're blessed and you're a child of God. But don't miss this one point. There's a cost to being a peacemaker. Let's just be honest, there's nothing easy about it. If you're gonna, if you're gonna make peace, it's gonna cost you something because to even just get to the point of making peace, you're gonna have to have an awkward conversation. It might even, might even be a, a rebuke of you or another person. You're gonna have to deal with issues you don't wanna deal with. It's probably gonna bring a point where you have to offer some forgiveness and that apology is not easy. There's a real good chance that you're gonna have to drop your pride. It's gonna take some humility. And just so you know, on the front end, you'll probably be misunderstood. It's all throughout scripture that the disciple of Jesus is oftentimes not understood by the, by the values of the culture that they're in. And so when you try to promote peace, when you try to do it Jesus' way, there's a good chance that, that people won't get it. It may even lead, sometimes peace will actually lead to what, what looks like separation. And I only tell you this because the only way you're gonna find peace internally or eternally is to recognize that you will pay the price for peace. You're gonna pay some kind of price. And I, I only say that because I, I don't want you to think that if you just do the right things and everything's gonna work out, like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Do you remember that? The little train comes through and everything always works out at the end. In real life, though, sometimes, sometimes King Friday stops talking to Prince Tuesday, which makes it really awkward for Daniel Tiger. And if you don't know what any of that means, you had a lousy childhood. But that's life. And peace is gonna cost you something. In fact, the truth is making peace will mean laying something down. If you're going to be a peacemaker, get, get this. Don't, don't go into this thing blind. Making peace is going to mean laying something down. How do I know that? I know that because there's only one real model for us that perfectly showed how to be a peacemaker. And it was Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And if you need to find peace either in a situation or in your life, listen to what scripture says, Ephesians chapter two, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Understand this, Jesus paid the price for peace. And look, there's some of you that are either sitting in this room or you're watching this on a screen somewhere and you would say peace is the last word I would use to describe my life. Conflict, difficulty, confusion, chaos. I'd use those words. And I don't know where to find peace. And what this teaches us more than anything else is the only place you're gonna find peace in life is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the reason why we make so much out of Easter weekend because he went to the cross and died for our sins so that he could be our savior. That word savior means that he gives us forgiveness, that he paid the price for our sins. And he also died on the cross so he could be our Lord, so he could be the one that would guide us and give us direction, would give meaning and purpose to our lives. And when you make Jesus your savior and your Lord, that's when you find peace like no other time. And if you, if you need that peace in your life, it'll only be found in him. But you know what you have to do at some point? If you want peace, if you want your life to move forward, you're gonna have to lay it down. You're gonna have to give control of it to him. And that's not just true about you finding peace, that, that's also true if you're gonna be a peacemaker. In that circumstance, in that situation, if you want it to move forward, that conflict in your family and with your church and with your school and on the job or with that friend or with that person that did you wrong, at some point, if you keep holding on to it, you're never gonna be a peacemaker. You'll never move forward unless you at some point are willing to drop your pride and put on some humility and forget some things that happened in the past, I don't, whatever it might be, and, and lay it down. I recently helped a friend move. There were three of us 
And, uh, you know, when you're moving stuff, you don't want to take more trips than you have to. So we were like loaded up. All three of us had stuff. And in the process of doing this, you had to kind of open one door and you had to push an elevator button and you kind of had to open and unlock another door just to get to kind of where we were going. And every time we would hit one of these roadblocks, you kind of stop and you just kind of look like, well, who's going to do something? And we'd all kind of be like, well, I'm not doing it. I got my arms full. I'm not opening that door. Well, I'm not going to do it. And at some point, somebody said, all right, I'll just, and you'd have to put your stuff down so that you could do what it takes to move forward. If we hadn't been willing to put our things down at some point, we'd still be standing there, right? You're never going to move forward if you're holding on to things so tightly that it keeps you from, from getting to that place of peace. So I don't know if today you've got to drop your pride. I don't know if you've got to drop the past. I don't know if you've got to drop the act. I don't know what it is. But if there's something you're holding on to that's keeping you from, from being a peacemaker, the Holy Spirit's encouraging you, put that thing down. Because it's only bringing chaos to your life instead. So I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to close in prayer here in just a minute. But I got, I got two quick questions for you. The first is this. If you just say, Chad, in my life, I, I need peace. I need peace in a situation at work. I need, I need God's peace in my, in my family. I need God's peace in my relationships. I need God's peace in my heart. If you would just say, God, you're the author of peace. Jesus, you're the prince of peace. I need your peace in my life today. Would you just raise your hand? That's you. Say, God, I need peace. Second question. It's one thing to ask for it. It's another thing to do something about it. And if you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and there's steps that he's challenging you to take to be a peacemaker, there's something that you need to do and you'd say, God, help me to be a peacemaker. Would you just raise your hand? That's between you and God. Just say, God, help me to be a peacemaker. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that these words from the Sermon on the Mount that are 2,000 years old speak right to our hearts today. So Jesus, for those that are struggling today, would you be their Prince of Peace? Would you help them to see what battles are worth fighting and what things need to be laid down? Would you bring peace to these situations? God, we ask that you'd help us to be blessed as peacemakers. Proactively, reactively, God, give us the wisdom and the insight to bring peace to the situations, to make peace in the places where you've called us to be. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor, your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.